0: Hello and welcome to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, series presenter. In our previous episode, we looked back at some of the main trends in cybersecurity from 2023 with our guest Amanda Finch, CEO of the Chartered Institute of Information Security. If you haven't already downloaded that episode, do check it out. It's well worth a listen. In it, Amanda highlights some of the key challenges facing this industry, including the increasing attack surface and the ongoing skills gap. And those are just some of the challenges set to face CISOs in 2024. For this first episode of Series 5, we thought we could expand on that and look more broadly at some of the issues that are set to impact both cybersecurity and anyone who uses digital services, which of course is pretty much everyone. So we're very lucky to be able to welcome back one of last year's guests, Chris Dimitriadis, Chief Global Strategy Officer at ISARCA. Chris has put together his thoughts on the trends for 2024. These include the continuing skills gap, a closer relationship between cybersecurity and organizational boards, and changes to regulations that will force businesses to invest more in security measures. And he also suggests that AI will continue to grow in importance, as a way to drive efficiency in business, as a cybersecurity tool, and unfortunately also as a means of attack. I started by asking Chris why he thinks 2024 will see generative AI be part of the mainstream.
1: It's a great question, Stephen, and uh, thanks again for um, for having me today. The main reason is value creation and the fact that uh, through Generative AI, uh, a company can uh, create uh, better value for its customers, advanced services, new products, and um, help differentiate from competition. So it's all about value creation, primarily, uh, but it's also about efficiencies uh, at work and uh, doing things um, faster uh, and um, uh, more easily sometimes. In terms of value, we already have a number of practical applications of AI that um, we predict they're going to be uh, proliferated in uh, several different industries uh, faster in 2024. We have chatbots, we have uh, assistants, uh, we have um, uh, customer service tools, we have marketing tools. Um, We uh, also um, have um, let's say applications in specific industries like the automotive industry, I mean, AI uh, robots, those are new cars are at the end of the day AI robots that can uh, uh, you know, perform self-driving and so on. Those are you know, practical AI applications that we will see proliferating further in 2024. And then we have uh, the more um, maybe longer term uh, applications that will introduce even uh, more value uh, to a, a number of industries. For example, in the healthcare industry, um, there is a lot of research going on around AI being used for um, developing new drugs, uh, for um, uh, being able to predict to predict uh, diseases. Uh, so uh, maybe we won't see those applications in um, in 2024, uh, but um, we will definitely see progress there that will save the future as we go forward.
0: So from a security perspective, there's quite a lot of potential within AI, and we've also seen quite a lot of discussion around the potential use of AI tools in an offensive way. We'll come back to that in a moment. But looking at those enterprise applications for it that you've outlined and those business applications, is there a potential security risk that by bringing in this technology without sufficient testing and controls, we're actually creating a new set of vulnerabilities or a new attack surface? Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, The introduction of AI introduces um, a whole lot of risks from a very simple ones, like uh, the fact that um, those employees who are trying to develop um, a report to create text to create audio video, uh, they may be sharing corporate data uh, with a third party without um, the enterprise knowing about it. So potentially this can be classified as a breach. Uh, and this is you know, a very simple, um, uh, incident that uh, can occur through uh, the lack of awareness of uh, employees, or even for the lack of policies. I mean, Isaca reports um, present that uh, only ten percent of enterprises have um, a policy, security policy, around AI. And then we have the most, the more scary and the more sophisticated um, types of attacks, like those that uh, can. Uh, uh, use um, specific uh, input to an AI algorithm in order to extract personal information. Um, we have uh, injection attacks, especially for those AI algorithms that are crawling the web. Um, a number of sites can um, uh, may host information with uh, hidden text that can be used as uh, commands on AI that can manipulate its behavior. Uh, we have phishing attacks specifically for ai we may receive a link um, uh, that is uh, also including um, embedding a hidden text that um, when in, uh, when it becomes an input to ai then again it manipulates its uh, behavior we have role playing attacks when somebody asks ai to role play and even um, bypass all them um, the rules that are um uh, set for that AI algorithm, and uh, we have you know, uh, data poisoning um, attacks um, that um, impact the AI algorithm during its training process, especially, again, when this uh, algorithm is crawling the web for information, for learning during this process. Again, um, data can be poisoned, poisoned in order to manipulate the behavior and the output of the AI algorithm, and this can lead to a whole lot of uh, different impacts from uh, bias and discrimination, to data leakage, um, uh, to disinformation. So as we see more and more practical applications of AI, let's let's put aside the more sophisticated ones for the time being, but even for the practical application like the chatbots, like the um, uh, marketing tools um, that are being used today, as we use, as we see more and more of this use of AI, together with the attacks that have surfaced, uh, we should be expecting, uh, um, um, you know, the rising of uh,
0: more cybersecurity incidents at the same time. So that's the potential to exploit some of the AI tools that people are using. But we've also seen concern about the use of AI to generate new attacks. Do you, as ISACA, put a lot of credence on that? Is that a, a serious risk in your in your viewpoint?
1: Very serious. I'd say it's um, an absolutely great point, Stephen. And um, AI can be used for cybersecurity in order to improve cybersecurity systems. It can be used by attackers in order to increase the sophistication speed and the scale uh, of attacks at the same time. It's like any technology. It can be used for good or bad, and definitely AI um, can be used by adversaries in order to
0: launch uh, more sophisticated attacks. And this is something we expect to happen. What, if anything, can be done about that? And again, if we look at that from the perspective of the internal use of AI, applying security procedures to looking at the AI tools, and then potentially preventing the use of AI by attackers, uh, I suppose the, the first one is for the IT department or the CISO, the second one is probably more for governments in terms of regulation of AI? Absolutely. So. Um...
1: Again, I believe it all starts with uh, awareness, training, and knowledge. We cannot do anything about cybersecurity with a particular technology. We don't understand how this technology works. I mean, we can have uh, um, a CISO or um, a cybersecurity team can have the list of uh, attacks and the examples I provided earlier on in order to think about solutions. Even if for uh, some of them, there are no solutions. Uh, yet, so they will need to restrict the application of the AI algorithm in order to to prevent attacks or at least monitor in a more continuous basis. But they cannot do that um, if they don't understand the technology, because even if they have uh, the threat model, if they have the attack paths, they will not be able to uh, identify new attacks as they're being born, as they're being launched against the enterprise. So number one is to make sure that... um, Cybersecurity teams, but also employees are being trained around AI in order to understand wh- what they use, how um, AI operates, what types of input uh, it receives, what types of output it generates, how this a- output is being used in order to be able to calculate the impact and then think about uh, more holistic controls to put in place like you know policies and frameworks and uh, technology controls uh, that you have also mentioned earlier on. And then for governments, uh, Stephen, you're absolutely right. Um, We should um, uh, make um, what we should advocate for is to make sure that at least the regulations that are being prepared are uh, applied um, in a way that they are effective meaning that uh, it's great to see the new AI Act in Europe uh, being agreed uh, between the Council and Parliament in December uh, last year. It's great to see initiatives in the UK and um, for us to wait for the consultation for any AI Act initiative. It's good to see Biden's executive order in the United States around AI. Question is who is going and how is going to apply those regulations because those um, security Uh, practitioners out there, security managers, auditors, those uh, privacy professionals, um, the existing workforce, um, the um, the cybersecurity workforce that we have out there needs to be educated in order to apply uh, the act, in order to be able to perform risk assessments that are meaningful for the organization, in order to design architectures, in order to put controls in place. So all I'm trying to say is that we definitely need to, as a step one, to make sure that we upskill the existing workforce in terms of um, their knowledge uh, around AI. And uh, we also need to expand, uh, to extend this workforce, because as we all know, there is a skills gap, an existing skills gap out there that
0: is uh, growing year by year. So actually a degree of testing and experimentation with AI is probably quite useful as long as you apply some cyber hygiene around it and ring-fence those systems. You're not bringing in another potential set of risks. Absolutely. Very well said. In terms of the skills gap, firstly, how close are we to AI being able to help? And it's still early days, isn't it?
1: It's it's still early days. Uh, There are applications that are... um, Um, If you mean in terms of training, I mean, AI is being used in the education sector already and we expect more applications in order to be able to perform more personalized trainings and to be able to uh, increase the sophistication and speed of trainings as well. Uh, But uh, still, it's, uh, as you very well say, it's in the early days and it's more of uh, an intent and budgetary issue rather than a technology issue uh, right now. Because cybersecurity, and we have discussed this before, Stephen. Cybersecurity is not uh, for most of the industries. It's not generating revenue. It's a compliance um, a risk uh, for many industries. Uh, but um, when you know a specific function doesn't generate revenue, it's very hard to assign uh, larger budgets uh, to it. So again, the role of governments here is very important in order to see how. Uh, and um, uh, how fast um, cybersecurity training can can be subsidized further in order to support um, industries um, uh, of the economy, but also different uh, companies of different size within that economy. Because it's very hard for small to medium enterprises when they're trying to survive or to be able to grow. Uh, it's very hard to, um, they're very prudent and very diligent with their spending. And um, uh, it's very hard to prioritize uh, such cybersecurity trainings um, in practice.
0: Yeah, it divides up, doesn't it? So you've got the basic chat GPT download it on your mobile device tool, which is free to use and experiment with. And it's actually quite interesting. It's quite fun, can be. And then you've got the necessity to invest in very large and potentially expensive systems, which requires significant expertise, but perhaps not so much in that middle ground that small and medium-sized enterprises would be able to use. So that makes it difficult, I think.
1: It is. It is uh, difficult. And again, this is uh, where uh, governments can play a role. And um, uh, of course, this is where the cybersecurity industry can play a role because, with the advancement of um, new technologies, we can expect economies of scale in order to see how more cost effective we can uh, uh, make the, the provision of cybersecurity services for those who cannot uh, organically develop that
0: capability. Now, on that point about skills, though, we talked last year and yourselves and other organizations in the space do regular research into the scale of the skills gap. The conclusion that's come out of some of that research really is that the skills gap is, is if anything, becoming more of a problem. It's certainly not going away. Why do you at ISARCA think that that is proving such a hard problem to fix and what might happen to address that in the coming year?
1: Indeed, I mean, um, uh, we posted um, a research report late in 2023 that uh, still demonstrates that 60% uh, of the enterprises are understaffed uh, in terms of their cybersecurity um, uh, capability. Uh, And we also see a rise in attacks. So why is it such a problem? Again, um, from our point of view, this comes down to two things. The first one is about, uh, is a financial aspect as we have discussed it um, just now. The other one is about uh, awareness uh, and about um, prioritization of um, cybersecurity as a strategic element um, that will support success in an enterprise. So it's a combination of um, uh, awareness and um, uh, again, cost. Um we also um see that um uh, you know this skills gap um it, it's funny because it's as we train more and more people around the world, at the same time um we have an increasing need for cybersecurity personnel. And this increasing need come uh, is you know um is caused by Primarily two parameters. One is uh, again the quicker, the more rapid adoption of digital technologies in order to create value, in order to innovate. Uh, this is A and B. It is caused by more strict uh, regulation and uh, stricter compliance uh, needs um, in, in Europe. Um, you know we have um, the NIS directive, which is. Um, Uh, Coming uh, from a compliance point of view, view, um, uh, in October this year, we will need to see compliance against NIS2. Uh, The Cyber Resilience Act, we expect it to come into force sometime in 2024. And then, uh, of course, there there will be a three-year period in order to uh, achieve compliance. Um, And uh, of course, we have the DORA uh, regulation and uh, many more uh, you know, local and national regulations that are, um, are being put in place in order to protect the interests and, um, um, and the economy of its um, uh, country. Uh, so regulation is pushing, uh, more uh, needs are being created by emerging new technologies and the increased adoption of, um, uh, of digital. And um, in reality, in practice, we can, we, it, it's proven that we can't catch up. Uh, training versus uh, the need, demand versus um, uh, supply. And this is why we need to accelerate and um, to make sure that uh, we provide more and more holistic trainings. We um, need to see, again, more subsidization of cybersecurity training in order to make this more appealing for enterprises to train their people. And we also need to put a little more uh, focus on the cybersecurity career. Uh, paths and the uh, pay uh, as well in order to make this even more attractive for um, the younger generation to follow uh, those particular professions, no matter how much interesting um, they sound um, inherently because it's about cyber uh, or it's about you know, anti-hacking,
0: let's say. There is another point to that, I think, that when we look at how IT projects are set up or how digital projects are set up, You know, we're still seeing cybersecurity added in late in the process. And recently, we spoke to Amanda Finch, CEO of the Chartered Institute of Information Security here in the UK. And she observed that although more organizations are trying to move cybersecurity to the left, it's by no means universal. This creates an issue that potentially businesses are trying to do digitization without the security embedded into it. Maybe they're doing it because they're trying to save money. Maybe they're doing it perhaps more oftentimes because they want to get the product out there as quickly as possible. But that idea that was very fashionable a couple of years ago in digital, the minimum viable product, doesn't really work with security. You can't really have minimum security in a lot of ways, I don't think, can you? You have to have effective security.
1: Yeah, there's nothing uh, such as minimum security because uh, you know the attackers are always looking for the easiest path, path, path to exploit, and uh, you know minimum controls are just minimum controls, so it absolutely doesn't work. And uh, you made two very great points there, uh, Stephen. One about um, time to market, uh, one about uh, again the financials and the P&L of the project, and this comes again. Um, it comes down to our ability, our cybersecurity professionals to convey the message um, to the enterprise in a more um, um, quantified, let's say, ways in order to explain how cybersecurity will add value to the project, what it means for the end customer how it will protect the brand um, in a more quantified manner. And it also comes down to breaking silos because still, and it's funny, I mean, the point that you make, we, we are discussing this for many, many decades now, and it's, we still can't solve this problem of silos and for uh, you know lack of embedded security or security by design. Um, but you know, if you think about it, it, it all comes down how cybersecurity is explained as uh, a business enabler. Because if it was a business enabler, then it would be embedded. Uh, if it was a business, en- a clear business enabler, then uh, it uh, we wouldn't need to patch cybersecurity around um, a- any project, right? And uh, if we made cybersecurity a little bit more easier and prioritized based on the actual needs, of a particular project, then um, we may have um, partially solved the time to market problem uh, as well. Because many times, as cybersecurity professional we come ca- professionals we come with solutions that are very complex, heavy, and uh, you know they take um, time trying you know to address um, 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 you know the the problem. Uh, with more uh, of uh, you know standardized approaches, less uh, and less customized or bespoke uh, approaches that may,
0: at the end of the day, fit the project better and accelerate its uh, its time plan. So, yeah, fully agree. The and then that again is driving the requirement for more legislation and regulation because if industry doesn't build this in itself, if firms don't do this inherently as part of their digitization projects, then regulators will say we need to establish that base level of security. And they're less likely to be flexible because that's how legislators work. If you have a more prescriptive view of how you implement security, that potentially can make it harder to do and cost more.
1: Indeed, indeed. Uh, Although, you know, lately uh, we have seen many many regulatory updates um, that are taking feasibility and cost into account because at the end of the day, you know, Regulators are also having in mind, you know, what's the end goal? The end goal is to make sure that, uh, you know, citizens are protected, that the economy is supported, uh, that the the security, the safety of the countries is uh, is supported, right? Um, So, uh, but if they come forward with a regulation that's not cost effective, that's going to hurt the economy because the cost is going to be unbearable for... um, a particular industry, let's say in that country, or for small to medium enterprises in that country, they know that um, this regulation will not be um, applied uh, in practice, and we see um, this a lot in the um, in the negotiations for new regulations in several gi- different jurisdictions around the world, where you see you know clauses um, and paragraphs coming in and out of regulation because they are considered not um, pragmatic not feasible and uh, not cost effective in order to have a chance to be applied in practice. So um, I think that um, regulate, that the key here, again, is the sophistication of uh, cybersecurity, the training and awareness of uh, the cybersecurity community in order for us to be able to, um, when we advocate, to be able to suggest controls that are applicable in practice primarily from a financial point of view.
0: And certainly tracking some of the European legislation that's been drafted over the last two to three years, it does seem to be more pragmatic and more outcome-driven and less prescriptive. So that that's progress. I think industry has done a good job in working with lawmakers to ensure that happens. However, you talked about communications and you talked about the need for enterprises and government organizations and others to to rethink the way they look at cybersecurity and how it fits into the overall plan for what they're doing. And if we take it as granted that digitization will continue, I don't see any reason why it would not over the coming year. Then that question of where cybersecurity is represented in the organization comes to the fore. Uh, and you've said that in the coming year, you expect cybersecurity to get that position at the boardroom table, at the top table in uh, the public sector. Why do you think that will happen now, and what needs to happen for the CISO to take on that role?
1: Um, I think that um, it's going to happen because of um, the new regulations we have discussed. There are, uh, in NIS2, for example, there are obligations for um, uh, management. Um, um, and training for um there are you know liabilities uh in several different regulations um that tie um uh, you know, to the to the board of directors. So uh one thing is um a compliance and liabilities, okay? The other uh, is about awareness. I mean, as we go forward with the adoption of new technologies, more and more uh, awareness, is being um, created that uh, at the boardroom, and more and more enterprises are targeting at uh, having digitally uh, savvy uh, boards in order to be able to keep up with um, the developments of um, uh, of our modern times. Um, I also think that um, um, you know those major breaches that um, uh, we see, we read in the news uh, every year. Uh, are also helping uh, create awareness in um, i mean they may be terrible but at the same time they are creating awareness in uh, in specific industries and we see boards being mobilized or at least ask questions to the ceo and management uh, you know about the um, uh, controls that um, have been put in place in order to you know for that particular enterprise organization to avoid a similar uh, bridge. um so, uh, awareness and regulation are the two key drivers um, uh, from my uh, point of view, Stephen. And then, um, you know, when it comes to more mature boards, um, they definitely need to hear from the expert and they definitely need to hold, um, um, you know, specific people uh, accountable. Uh, but also support them at the same time in order to to make sure that they avoid those liabilities and uh, they avoid any disruption in their business or um, any financial loss. Uh, so uh, since we are um, uh, maturing, um, uh, you know, through the more and more adoption of digital, uh, this. Uh, it, it, I think it's the time that, you know, in 2024, with this acceleration that we see, especially with what we hear about AI, um, I I strongly believe that it's time
0: where we see more and more boards uh, discussing cybersecurity and taking action around it. And that question of communications and being able to explain the risks and explain potentially the mitigation of those risks in boardroom language, that's still something that needs work, isn't it? It does, it does. Um, we are not,
1: um, you know, trained uh, to speak that language because uh, as a community we come from uh, more of a technical uh, background and um, I, I believe that uh, there's still need, work needs to be done um, and more education and training is needed in order for um, those CISOs and
0: representatives to be able to speak a language that the board understands. And what steps do you think could be taken in the coming year to do that?
1: Definitely more uh, specialized training uh, around the boardroom communications about business um, and, um, uh, you know, about those uh, factors in each particular industry that um, um, make sense. Um, uh, for um, uh, for the board to to hear and to discuss uh, about them. I mean, if we go, you know, with a vulnerability list or with a set of incidents to a board and start uh, speaking an unknown language, this is not going to go well, obviously. So uh, again, training, education, awareness, more horizontally. Um, it's 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 not about cybersecurity. It's about cybersecurity being able to understand how um, a CFO. Uh, speaks how um, uh, a director of the board speaks, how a
0: CEO uh, speaks in order to be able to convey the message in the right language. And potentially more of a role for collaboration between government and business as well? Absolutely, absolutely.
1: It's about a collective effort. OK, it's um, so the, this um, government
0: to, to, to industry collaboration is key uh, in order to achieve that. Chris Dimitriadis, Chief Global Strategy Officer at ISACA, on why this year is the year cybersecurity really needs to start speaking the language of business, as that's the only way to communicate the risks that come with operating in cyberspace. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. We'll be back on January the 25th, when we'll look into the world of web apps and why it's so difficult, but also so important to secure them. Do look out for that episode. Until then, you can, of course, catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, Or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.